When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg, H-Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pam and Jump, Brando, The King and I, The King and I and me too. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of We Didn't Start the Fire. Woo! The podcast that races higgledy-piggledy through post-war history and the reasons why the world is the way it is today. All done through the medium and madness of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. And do you know where we're going today, Katie? No, I have no, I have no idea. None. I'm going to say to you, Yul Brynner, I'm going to say Deborah Kerr. I'm going to say... A musical which, if you were to try and pitch it, I think you'd struggle. But it's massive. It's The King and I. The King and I. Well, you know, you were saying Yule, and I was thinking Westworld. I was thinking Ah. like evil, sexy cowboy robots. And thank goodness that Billy was bringing me back from the brink. The King and I. Were you ever in a production of The King and I? Did you sing the songs for The King and I at any point in your childhood? Uh Now, I have to say, uh, with my ragtag Cold War childhood that I endured admirably, I don't believe I had any interaction with the king and I. No, no, I didn't star as Anna in a grade school (laughs) production of it. Uh, I was never tempted to shave my head. In admiration of Yul Brenner, how about you? Was there an 80s song that you listened to? For once, I don't think The King and I is referenced in any other 80s song, apart from Billy Joel's number one smash hit, We Didn't Start the Fire. We didn't start the fire! And so the only reference I had to it, the March of the Siamese Children, right? When I was a kid, we probably had about six or seven different records that we'd sneak on the record player when my mum wasn't looking. And the March of the Siamese Children was on some weird, like Woolworths used to these compilation albums where other people would perform other people's hits or there might be instrumental versions. And when I listened to March of the Siamese Children before this show, some sort of memory went off. Hang on, I remember being in the Hartford Jurassic's borders at the age of four, putting a needle very carefully on a record oh. and hearing this before. And 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 it went like... Exactly. So we know a little bit about it. As always on this show, we've got someone who knows heaps about it. Oh, thank goodness, because I thought if we're going to fill like this for another hour, <laughs> it's going to be a really long hour. It's a lot of singing. And even better news, <laughs> we have got back Dr. Cara Robway, who joined us on yes. episode five when she told us all about South Pacific. Uh, Cara is chair of the British Association for American Studies and deputy head 
of the Eccles Centre for American Studies at the British Library. Cara, it is lovely to have you back. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I think in my the last time I was with you, it took till the end of the episode before we started singing. But I like that <laughs> yes. you know that we've we've we've, we've you know, started as we mean to go on. With, yeah. Uh, with no, you, you've you've kind of broken us. I was going to say you you broke us in, but I think it's better just to say you've broken us, and uh, <laughs> we just we now sing as a way of communicating. Yes, we do. Yes. I mean, my work here is done. Shall I just leave? No. <laughs> Please don't, because then you're just leaving us here with everybody else and they're not going to be happy about that. So we obviously are patching together some half-baked, half-remembered thoughts <laughs> about The King and I. We're not really sure about it, but um, can you put us in the picture about what was going on in America when The King and I came to be? Why did it make such an impact? So the stage show is in 1951. So that's, you know, six years after the end of World War Two. It's quite interesting you know, to think about why Asia might have been interesting to Americans at this point. You know, we tend to think, I suppose, perhaps if you think of the arc of the 20th century of the sort of Vietnam War as this big kind of moment, you know, the n- number of, sort of Vietnamese refugees who move to the US. But, but it's actually... Yeah, the the beginning of the early Cold War, there's quite a lot of interest in Asia because um, you have what they call the fall of China in 1949. And then you have the Korean War, which is kind of the forgotten conflict of this period. So, not, not for Koreans. Well, in, indeed. Uh, so there's, yeah, there is this sort of interest in, in Asia. But I think what The King and I does is it's it's just, it's super exotic and exciting. And it has these lavish costumes and sets. And it does have these beautiful, beautiful songs. And that, I think, is what's really helped it. So, you know, you, we, you've talked a little bit about some of the music, but, you know, the, the big songs, you know, Getting to Know You, uh, Shall We Dance, which is the the big kind of, Cum- you know, the big culmination could at I, the could end. Could I ask for for the title of these songs to be sung, Cara? Would that be okay? Just to, just Shall to catch- we dance? So that's... Obviously, you know, this is this is you know, the power of audio. I do hope the listeners are imagining me in a massive <laughs> oyster-coloured ball gown. Um, <laughs> so it does have these really lovely songs. Um, yeah, there's some really lovely ones, I think. Um, Hello, Young Lovers, Wherever You Are is a really beautiful... Oh, that's the yeah. one that... That Anna, the governess, who's the you know the, the star of the story, you know, sings about her, her her lost love, her dead husband, and it is a really beautiful song. So it has these does have these lovely tracks, and I think that's what's kind of kept it going. Because I'm going to be hands up, I do not know why else this show has had the lasting power. It has. <laughs> oh, memo to Billy Joel, <laughs> Doctor Carr Rodway is not quite as convinced at well, the King and I's inclusion into his magnum opus. I mean, I do, I understand because it had a massive impact in its in its day. So the stage show was hugely successful. And then the film adaptation, which is five years later in 1956, was also was also huge. And Yul Brynner, as you pointed out, who I hope we get a chance to talk to you about in oh, detail because yeah. oh, he's, yeah. he's fascinating. And he does become the king. I mean, this is like the, this is the performance of his career almost. So I, I get that, but what I don't understand is since 1951, there have been, according to Wikipedia, which we know is obviously the font of all knowledge, mm, I, sure. count, I counted when I was coming here, 15 major US and UK productions since 1951, including six since the millennium. I found myself thinking, what, why does this show, which is frankly... It's a bit weird and a bit racist if you really get down to it, I think. You know, the, the film is basically peopled by white actors playing Asian characters. The Thais, or the Siamese, are kind of all infantilised. They're all childlike. The part of the king is just, it's just a bit weird. I know that Brynner made it his own, but sitting and watching the film now, I find it a bit odd. There's, a, there's, there's more 
wonderful 50s musicals of which obviously many are incised on my heart but this one I do find a bit strange but it's it's lavish it's spectacular the you know the film is widescreen it's technicolor mm. it had these incredible really like fantasy sets if you if you watch the film you know, n- there's no realism it's not like on the town or south pacific which we talked about which are all you know filmed on location very deliberately this is just this kind of giant halls of you know marble and silks and brocade and oh i know it's like a trump hotel or or you know or it's like a trader vic's tiki bar yeah it's just it's very hollywood exotic it just goes it goes full on and so then the the film did win for the costumes and the set design in what i love i love in this period they have a color category and a black and white category so it won in the color category Mm. um but you know it did it was really lavish and exotic and beautiful and and when you think about the 1950s you know tv is starting to really chip away at the dominance of film but if you know what those early tv sets look like they're minute and they're black and white and they've got kind of cruddy reception and so the one of the only things the film industry had was to say come to the cinema and you have these spectacular Ah. colorful experiences so having you know technicolor or 3d or you know all these crazy things that they tried to sell people in the 50s musicals work really well in these sort of lavish formats and so that's one of the reasons why they're so successful so that if you if you see it kind of in that frame you, you understand Stand a bit, but I just I, the fact that it keeps getting redone, I find odd. And for people who haven't seen the film, Cara, because we assume that it is this great romance between Anna and the King, just talk us through how their relationship actually develops and where it ends up. Yeah, so that was another significant change, actually, from well, from the, the real history, but then also of the you know, from the previous source material. So Oscar Hammerstein made this quite radical decision to 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 have the king die at the at the end. But yeah, so so you know, Anna's employed to teach the king's children. He wants to modernise Siam, so he wants them to learn English. Um, but then she also has to help him with his correspondence. So you have this sort of opportunities for kind of private interaction between the two of them but it's you know it's very sort of sparring that's how it's written you know it's sort of disagreement and tension through the through the piece and also she stands up for herself because he's very patriarchal and wants yeah. her you know all women need to bow to the man and she puts another uh, idea in his head about maybe that isn't the way yes so there's so there is this this nice kind of you know proto-feminist discussion that that you know that she shouldn't have to bow but also there's this the, and this is where i think some of the kind of I start to feel a bit uncomfortable about the racial elements and the kind of cultural elements because I think in in its time it was very much seen as a as a story of sort of cultural understanding, you know, how these different cultures come to understand each other. But I think when you watch it now, it's just very clearly the Western way is right. You know, it's a good thing that he's trying to westernize his country. Yay, you know, and there's sort of that that I think reads a bit patronizing maybe, maybe yeah maybe i'm too right on i need to you know reimagine what it was like you know in 50s america but that that strikes me i think as a modern viewer as, as a bit uncomfortable she eventually kind of comes to sort of advise the king but you know because of the way that you know the power structures work she can't possibly just give him ideas she has to suggest you know has to guess what he might do well well you know well sir i would guess that you might do this and he goes oh yes of course i'd do that and there's sort of there's humor there but there's, it's also it is belittling you know he is very much seen as as sort of childlike himself and the fact that yeah the you know it's it's you know by learning to waltz that he's going to become a better person you know? <laughs> anyway i mean maybe that's true of all of us i think it could be true i think that is the ultimate message in this film looking at it now i'm trying to get my head around understanding 
how big it was. Like, was this a, a total cultural moment where it was on the cover of Life magazine and maybe there was a behind the scenes documentary or, you know, it was featured on, uh, you know, whatever nascent TV talk shows were going on? Like, was this the talk of the town? Yeah, it did. It, it, it was very popular. And, you know, I think, as we, we mentioned, you know, that there was the, the stage show was, was as popular as well as the film, though, that, you know, it was regularly reproduced. There was, you know, successful national touring productions, British, you know, broad, sorry, West End productions. Um, and it did. It made a lot of money. It, it was four and a half million dollars budget for the film, which was a lot of money then, but it made 21 million. So that's, you know, it basically kept Fox going in the in the mid 50s. Um, and yeah, so it was it was very successful. But one thing I think is quite funny about the um, We Didn't Start the Fire uh, you know, treatment of popular culture is that, you know, and as a lover of musicals, obviously, I note this, this is the last musical that gets mentioned in those lyrics, where we ask are, you know, My Fair Lady, West Side Story, Sound The music. Sound of Music. The Sound of Music is the, the most profitable film musical ever. But I think, I think uh, Billy might have lost a bit of interest <laughs> by that point. He's like, I don't, maybe I don't, he didn't have the cast album at home. I don't know. He might have been thinking, he might have gone through his lyric case and just thought, I've mentioned quite a few musicals here. I need to back off the musicals. I don't know. He, he certainly didn't have that, that sense of uh, self-censorship when it came to baseball players. Loves no, his baseball. I, I think, Katie, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, you know, I, I think he, he... He could have cut some and maybe included, you know, the Von Trapp family singers. I think so, <laughs> I think so too. Okay, we're going to hop off for a quick ad break, but we'll be right back. My name is Jill Lepore. I'm an American historian. But over the last few years, I've been troubled by some pretty big questions about the present. Why is it so hard for us to agree on what's true? Why does it feel so impossible to know anything anymore? So I started a podcast, The Last Archive, to find answers, to trace a history. Listen to The Last Archive on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. So I have a, a, a question because, um, number one, I think, okay, I can get why at that time in the culture and what was happening sociopolitically around the world, that there would be interest in the Far East. And even though this is kind of a, a fantasy olden days look at the Far East. But what I didn't know was that it's actually based on the story of a real British woman who who was the teacher of the Prince of Siam's kids. Uh, so can you yeah. tell us a little bit about the real Anna? Yeah, so so there is there is a real Anna Leon Owens and she was a school teacher um, and she was working and you know she was employed by the King of Siam. She then produced a memoir in about 1870, which was already quite fictionalised. Um, she did a great job of kind of creating a, a fictitious background for herself, this idea that she was a, a Welsh woman who'd um, married a, a military a, you know, man, an officer in the Indian army. Actually, she was of mixed British Indian heritage. Her husband was a... Um, a clerk but I do find it fascinating because this idea of being a working woman in the 1860s yeah. of a certain class is in itself very interesting and also the, the fact that she presumably sort of palmed off her slightly olivey skin as um, oh well I'm just I'm Welsh so <laughs> that explains it all yeah. it, apparently so I don't <laughs> I'm a little surprised but yeah there we go but yeah so she she did and she she herself I do recommend 
you know, if listeners are, are looking for a new topic, she is she is very interesting. And, yeah. you know, reading up a bit about her, she's very long lived. Um, she helped found an art college in Canada. She was a suffragist. She worked, you know, lived all over the world, Australia, Germany, Canada eventually. Um, yeah, so she, she's quite interesting, I have to say. So she writes this memoir, which is then refound in the 1940s by... Um, a novelist called Margaret uh, Landon, who writes a book called Anna and the King of Siam in 1944. It was then made into a movie, which again itself did quite well in in 46, I think, with Rex Harrison and Irene Dunn, who were big stars at that time. And it was that which Gertrude Lawrence, who was this uh, middle-aged British Broadway star, um, saw the movie and then said to her agent, I, I think I could do something with this, you know. And so they decided to to, to, to buy the, uh, the rights to it and to get it uh, turned into a musical. And Rodgers and Hammerstein were approached and they were a bit like, well, it's just sort of vignettes, the book. It's not, it, you know, it's hard to see how you'd really make a, you know, a, a structure out of it. But they also then saw that the 1946 adaptation and said, OK, actually, we can see what we see what they did and we see why that's successful. So Rodgers and Hammerstein were interested, but they didn't really like the idea of writing for somebody. They, they, they preferred to make their stars, not write for someone. And Lawrence was, although she had had success, she was, she's very well known for doing Noel Coward plays and she had done some musical work, musical uh, plays. And they found this unknown actor, Yul Brynner, and he was very much second fiddle. You know, he, his name wasn't even on the marquee when the show opened and he did win a tony award for the first production you know it, it's it's sort of kind of through the force of his personality and the force of his performance that that the king becomes such a significant figure and lawrence sadly died young she died during the the broadway run um when she was unwell from her hospital bed she demanded that brinner be given a billing on the marquee because he'd earned it and obviously she knew she was dying it's always quite sad really she was buried in her costume from act two in the giant ball gown oh, um it's a big is, coffin that's a really <laughs> folding in the silk piano case <laughs> i have to just observe that uh not only did deborah carr die on the job but so did Yul Brenner. They both... Are we talking about The Curse of the King and I? The Curse of the King and I. If you are starring in that play, you better watch out <laughs> because you might be buried in a piano case with your poofy shall we dance skirt. Well, you know, we, we can all, all hope for such a glamorous end, maybe. Um, but yeah, Yul Brynner did eventually, um, you know, he very sadly was told that he had lung cancer on the day of his 4,000th performance um, of, as, as the king. They were on tour in L.A. My, my favourite, slightly odd, but really awesome fact was that he actually did a posthumous advert for the American Cancer Society, a smoking awareness ad which was you know basically you own shirt once i'm dead and he speaks to camera and says you know now i'm not here i want you all to think about you know the evils of smoking so i thought that was that was quite a, a fascinating Whoa. quite oh he's one of those figures isn't he where he's yul brynner is inescapable because you're going to see magnificent seven or you've seen the king and i you, you you're aware of who west world don't forget west, west world. world of course you can't ignore yul brynner but he was a russian immigrant so he's this massive star carer at a time where the Cold War is raging. Did people know his heritage? Are there people watching it thinking, well, this guy's a strange-looking Thai man? I don't, I don't imagine that... He didn't play it up, obviously, his sort of... The, the Russian-ness, certainly. The name's um, not... You, like, he's not called well, Brinovich or something, is he? Well, he, he was. Oh, was he? <laughs> he was. But <laughs> Yule is a pretty foreign name. Well, he, and it's actually Yuli. Um, so he shortens it to Yule, which, okay. sounds, which does sound less Russian, and um, the family name is, is adjusted... 
But his early life is really interesting. So he's born in Vladivostok, which is obviously you know, far, far east Russia, to, I think his, his dad was European, was like German, Swiss or something. But his mum was Russian kind of socialite. Um, the dad leaves the family like when he's like three. So his mum takes Brunner and his sister to China, where they live for a few years. And then they emigrate to Paris, where he spends his kind of early adolescence playing guitar, like gypsy songs in Russian bars in Paris. Then trains as an acrobat. Obviously, why not? Spends his teenage years as an acrobat, hurts his back, decides he's going to be an actor. Um, his mum gets sick. They go back to China and they then emigrate to the US via Japan in 1940. So, of course, you forget Japan and America at war at that point. So, yes, yeah, sails from, from Japan as, as a 20-year-old to, to, to San Francisco and, and immigrates. Um, so, yeah, so that's, so that's his sort of... So, yeah, he is this complete unknown when he arrives in this amazing role of the king. And did the head shaving, does, does that work for him? Because is it true that he didn't... He actually could have kept a full head of hair and then he shaved it for the king and I and everyone's going, love the look, Yule. And he's thinking, yeah, I like this look. And he... He just shaves it forever more. He did. He it, could it, keep hair. He he can, and actually, you know, if, if you you know if you Google Yul Brynner with hair, that turns out to be a, like an actual search. I'm and doing that. <laughs> does he look better with hair or without? If you didn't see him in The King and I, he I think he looked he looked quite good looking. I think those sort of early those forties sort of images of him with hair. Yeah, I'm I'm calling it up on the mainframe here, looking at a, a few photographs of Yul with hair. He's looking um, it's it's a little Count Dracula. He's got a very deep widow's peak, and then it's already receding quite dramatically. Yes, which which actually also is quite a sort of forties men's look. You then slick back the hair with the widow's with the widow's peak. It became a trademark, you know, and it was actually sometimes referred to as the Yule Brynner look. You know, if somebody shaved their hair, that was it was you know. I tell you, that is just such a lucky ducky way to fall in terms of your male grooming, because uh, <laughs> usually that's just the biggest tragedy for guys. I mean, poor guys and the occasional woman who loses their hair. But somehow he turns this liability into his uh, pumping for action yeah, success Yeah, and he, he makes it synonymous with these sort of very powerful, sort of hyper-masculine roles. So I have to say, as I was watching the film the other day, I started to get into Yule a little bit. I think I perhaps wrote him off as a, a little bit of a... I don't know, I maybe objectified him as the token bald guy. But anyway, I was taken in by the arms akimbo power poses. And uh, it turns out that the hotbed of erotic intrigue in that film happens during the Shall We Dance number. Yeah, the way that they plot it. And this is quite one of the many things I think is funny about the, the show as a whole is that you don't have a conventional romance at the heart of this, partly because of the historical setting and the two, the, you know, the social position of the two characters. You can't have them sort of declare their love for each other. But so you also have... probably correlate the taboos of the time that the movie and the, the play were made. Yes, there would have been. And it would have been perceived as an interracial relationship. So, you know, the, the, what's really interesting is that you then realise that basically the entire, like, erotic, um, you know, moment of catharsis is actually just them waltzing around a ballroom, you know. So it's, 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 quite, it's quite clever, I suppose, in some sense, how it works with our emotions as viewers that, you know, that this is the big moment is, you know, just this giant, you know, 
I can't remember. There's always stats about how much, how many pounds the dresses weigh. But you know how many? Oh, I think it was like seventy pounds. I read that it was seventy pounds. Yeah, big heavy dress, and apparently Deborah Carr got uh, got bruises from uh, from the obviously called the hooping underneath. You're sweeping around. Um, so yeah, but it's it's true, isn't it? That that's that that's the climax of the, well, of the it, film. It's the climax because she's trying to do a polka with him. I guess it's all very metaphorical. You you'll find this out, Tom, <laughs> as you yeah. as you venture out with young ladies. Yeah. whenever that happens young man uh yeah so there she's teaching him the polka because he the king of course is wants to be part of the uh you know the worldly elite the cosmopolitan elite so he wants to learn all of these little niceties the social niceties and so he's like yeah that's great and everything but what about this other dancing i've seen where they touch each other and already she's wearing in the movie deborah carr is wearing some kind of like teensy little waist whittling wasp waisted corset thing and her breasts are just like heaving underneath her chin as she's like contemplating being touched by baldy and then you know yule comes in with his big man meat hand and puts it on her <laughs> tiny little wasp waist and it's just so funny like even if you watch it on on youtube and you see all the comments underneath you, you see all of these women just writing about oh i just had to fan myself when he touched her waist like you can fetishize anything and frankly i was there with them well, I think that I think that's very true, and, that, and that's obviously what they're tapping into is that kind of that sort of the thrill of Victorian repression, you know, that you can yeah, where you can find excitement in a in a in a hand on a waist or you know, uh, yeah. A, I mean, a, a I'm glance. a I'm a cheap date, Cara, so it really doesn't take much to get me going. So just so you know, just bear that in mind, listeners. One little tidbit that uh, piqued my interest is the fact that the king and I was banned in. Siam or Thailand at the time and to this day is still banned still in Thailand banned. and uh, what is it that's sticking in their craw do you think? So, as far as I understand it and you've definitely got me here as my title suggests I work on American studies so you know Thai history is, <laughs> is not my forte. Come on come on. Um, but you know just to uh, you know speculate. To, 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 to speculate wildly. Just spitball. I think I think that actually all versions of this story are, um, are banned in Thailand and it's all really to do with the presentation of the monarchy. I think a lot of Thai readers and viewers find find it offensive you know it is it is belittling and cartoonish this treatment of of Monkut, who was a real person and he i mean he was a a monk a buddhist monk for half his life you know he was an educated person and even even now they they, they have their you know, laissez majesty laws in thailand against um speech in that's seen as derogatory of the royal, you know towards the royal family um it's a contemporary political issue. They're, they're currently enforcing the laws during um, pro-democracy protests. So it's a real kind of live issue in Thai society and Thai politics. I would say as an expert in American studies, you have totally nailed that digression into Thailand. Why, thank Cara, you very much. In a spectacular manner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some some good bullcorn going on there, Cara. <laughs> Gotta love the world service. <laughs> <laughs> So when you referred to Deborah Carr earlier, because I want to mm. talk about her, just explain to me, because I look at her name and it's Deborah Kerr. Why is she Deborah Carr? Because that's how she chose to pronounce it. And I, my it's K-E-double-R. It, it is K-E-double-R. And I have to fully hands up admit that I thought it was Deborah Kerr until I started working, um, actually doing my research to come and talk to you. And then I discovered this marvellous little tidbit, which apparently MGM billed her as Carr to rhyme with star, which oh, I yeah. thought was rather lovely and is a good little mnemonic. Um, so, yeah, she was a you know, very popular actress of this period, British, but had um, the, the people may know her from Powell and Pressburger's Black Noss 
Narcissus from 1947, which is the most marvelously, marvelously over the top uh, film about about you know uh, sexual repression and nuns. Um, I, this all does make me realize I watched a lot of films about nuns as a kid. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have wanted to be a nun for a little while. I think I thought <laughs> it was singing nun. Well, I think I thought it sort of led to kind of yeah, yeah a lot of singing. Stage career. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. Fortunately, I was disabused of this. <laughs> yes. But the but Deborah Carr is is fascinating, and you know she so she's. I think possibly because of her, you know, her accent and her her, her her look, she does play a lot of very sort of prim British parts in her sort of early Hollywood career. But she's incredibly well respected and very versatile. And for the eleven years from 1950 to 1961, she was nominated for six Academy Awards, Best Actress, so on her own, Best Actress, six nominations. Um, and yeah, she's she's wonderful. I think you know, I think she does. She brings a lot of, sort of humanity to it. She's very beautiful. You she know. doesn't do her own singing though. She does not do her own singing, which is is really really interesting. And it was actually she she did actually in an interview not long after I think the the film sort of let slip that she wasn't doing her own singing. But that and that was you know a big problem because the this use of what they call double double singers, which is where the word dubbing comes from, was a major feature of. Hollywood musicals of this period, but it was also meant to be a secret because, you know, the these are big, expensive productions and Hollywood producers didn't want the audience to think that their stars were less than perfect. And so there was this practice of, of using dubbing singers. And so the woman who, who does sing all of uh, Deborah Carr's songs is called Marnie Nixon, who in herself is a fascinating um, professional. So she was a, was a trained opera singer and she had um, been bought in a few years before, to what they called sweeten Marilyn Monroe's tracks on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which basically means, like, sing the high notes. Um, really? Yeah, that was quite mm. a common practice because, you know, it's, you know, sometimes you might be just the right person, you know, your look, your performance to do something, but, you know, your your skills just don't quite, you know, reach. And they wanted things to be perfect. So she had, so she had, she had done this dubbing for Monroe, um, but she was then found to do... Uh, King and I and what's so interesting though and I think really why it really works is it wasn't it wasn't kept a secret from Carr Carr knew that she wasn't good enough she said you know I took some singing lessons and I was really trying but I just really rapidly realised I, I couldn't do it I'm not a singer and so Marnie Nixon and she worked really closely together they really collaborated on it so they took six weeks to record six songs really working hard together and a really nice example is the beginning of getting to know you if you if you watch it because there's a there's a spoken introduction and that's Deborah Carr and she then sings two lines I think two lines a couple of lines that's Marnie Nixon that you then get another couple of spoken lines that's Carr and you then go then it breaks into the full song and that's Nixon and it's it's just seamless when you listen to it unless you know it's really surprising and what's interesting is you then realize the times when it doesn't work so well once you know that once you're sort of thinking about how you do this thing very skillfully Marnie Nixon's Basically, she sang everyone, so she became the go-to because she's a really good mimic. Yeah, you know, she has this cut glass sort of uh, Julie Andrews style soprano in *The King and I*. Yes, um, but then you know she um, she does Audrey Hepburn in *My Fair Lady*. She does, but she also does Natalie Wood in *West Side Story*. Both of those actresses, Wood and Hepburn, thought they were going to do their own singing, so they recorded. Uh-huh. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> so, well, genuinely, like really, really, uh, the, the story goes that Natalie Wood actually didn't know that she didn't know they weren't using her own voice until she got to the premiere. I mean, it's all pretty awful. What? That um, is such a snub. Yeah, but yeah, you know, but it was very, it was, it was secret. You weren't. This wasn't meant to be known by the public, and so these these singers weren't well paid. Marnie Nixon did get 
$10,000 to do The King Knight, which was good, because a lot of the other singers just basically got studio weekly rates. Mm. And Nixon remembers getting $420 for her work on the soundtrack album. I mean, you think of how wow. many hundreds of millions of copies that album sold by the by the the time that cd you know versions of these soundtrack albums and things are coming out and like dvds with you know all the dvd extras and things you finally get to a point where these individuals are being credited and what's quite nice now is if you look up like the king and i soundtrack on itunes or spotify or whatever it says marnie nixon is the singer so she is yes. she's credited that gladdens my heart yeah so it's, it's, it's kind of come come full circle well, Cara, it's been an absolute joy having you explain this to us. Thank you for well, thank you so much for helping me. us. It's yeah, I you know always always happy to be bringing this this stuff to, to to new audiences or to old audiences. You know, people who've known about it for a while, but it's it definitely all you know warrants a, you know, a revisit. So I'm I'm really pleased that you guys have, have have invited me on. So thank you. Well, you don't really need to thank us. Thank Billy. Always thank Billy. Thank you, Billy. So, Tom, I was just waiting for Dr. Cara Rodway to leave so that we could talk about whether we thought The King and I should have been included in Billy's top tips for the 20th century, because I'm not really sure that he should have put it in there. I don't know what you think. Katie, I, I know what you mean, and Billy has made very few missteps so far, but we're on his 20th lyric, and... I'm wondering if this is his first major fuck up. <laughs> I, I mean, I I don't want to be saying he doesn't know what he's doing, but I think slightly his game was off with the king and I. He's had a bad twentieth lyric. It can happen. It can happen. It's the difficult twentieth yeah. lyric. I mean, I do think that sure. It's a very engaging musical. It was meaningful at the time. It certainly keeps a lot of middle-aged actresses (laughs) who can still kick their leg higher than their ovaries (laughs) in work. God bless them. But like Cara said, that's in the lyric and Sound of Music isn't in the lyric. Babe, what were you thinking? Like, I think he's just, he knows he's got Catcher in the Rye coming up and he's thinking I've got to get Catcher in the Rye particularly because he's from New York and he's a man yeah. and everyone who's a man likes J.D. Salinger because that's who they want to write like Yeah. so I think he's seen Catcher in the Rye and thought shit what could King and I that'll do oh yeah. he, he's, he's retro engineering isn't he exactly what he's done it's like what rhymes yeah. with rye and then, but then with the sound of music shy <laughs> I lie bombs in the sky that's an excess lyric that wouldn't have worked Ca- Captain Bly <laughs> is that Mutiny, Mutiny and the Bounty? Yeah, which might have been a musical later, oh. starring David Essex. Okay, so I'm I'm just thinking he's not he's not playing bringing his A game here. But what we're also saying is, look, Billy, you are a master lyricist, and we bow down before your yeah, of course, of course, your lyrics and the way that you've taken us through the post-war world yes, and the way the world you. is I thank you, as Billy. it is today. Yes, it's a misstep. Keep your chin up. You've done a cracking job. Yeah, don't let it get you down, Billy. Yeah. Don't let it get you down. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. 
I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.